0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Let me just say, before I read uh, our text, is that I've chosen it as our text. You might put in quotation marks. but I could have, in fact, chosen any number of texts, and particularly from the Psalms, that speak of the Creator and His creation. So this Psalm, Psalm 96, is our text in the loosest sense, in that we will not study it directly, but see what the Scripture, along with this Psalm, have to say about the Creator and His creation. Fall along, if you would, as I read Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Last Sunday, as we continued in our study of recovering a healthy doctrine of creation, we saw several realities about uh, creation as found in scripture. Two in particular. First of all, that creation is a gift. If we would be honest, as I said last week, we often think of creation or we experience it more as a burden than we do as a gift. We don't always see it as a gift from the creator. Um, Economic difficulties, health problems, environmental woes, um, we're in the midst of a, a severe drought, it, it, it becomes difficult at times to think of creation as gift, <clears throat> but we must not allow our circumstances to determine how we view the world. And we must be very careful about this because I think it's very easy to allow our circumstances to do precisely that. We, instead, we should be guided by the wisdom of Scripture, what Scripture says, the vision it gives of creation <coughs> excuse me, of creation, as a gift. Creation that is being redeemed. Excuse me for a minute. We need to understand that the Creator did not create out of a need for life or relationship, but simply as the gift of life and relationship. We've seen, as we looked at the grammar of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, that, first of all, they have relationship, and second of all, that they are life. And the nature of life is giving and receiving. And so when God creates the world, there is this giving from the one God, uh, and there is this relationship because God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, have relationship within the Godhead. God's life together is one of eternal, overflowing love. And no greater gift can be given than what God has given us. And no one can give this gift except the Creator. So both creation and redemption are gifts. The second thing we saw, and I would want to spend a bit more time on this, is creation as blessing. To receive creation as a gift, Uh, means that we are dependent. But it does not mean, in fact, that we are to be passive. God blesses His work of creation and in that blessing calls us to be participants in His work. To confirm or confess or affirm God's work as creation is to recognize it as blessing. Blessing is intrinsic to the meaning of creation. I, I mentioned this last week. I read it. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. If you think about it, just as we may wonder if creation is in fact a gift, given our circumstances at times, The idea that creation is a blessing also oftentimes runs counter to our experience and what we observe of life. So many people on this planet, not only now but in the past, have lived short, difficult lives. And so to speak of creation as blessing almost seems cruel at a certain point. But in fact... Creation is God's act of blessing. We affirm that in creating, God calls us into His work. He has given us a calling, a work to do, and He has given us the resource to, to do those things. Again, for some people, this seems counterintuitive. That work for them is a four letter word, it is something that is cursed, it's something that they hate. But if, in fact, we see work as part of God's creation, if we locate it within God's creation, we see that from the beginning it is tied to blessing. If you wish to rephrase what I just read from Genesis 1, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and work. I think for us, if God were to bless us, we would imagine that means we don't have to work anymore. But, in fact, God's blessing is he calls us to join him And working in his creation. And a part of that work that we are to do is worship. And it is in worship, I think more than any other place, but it shouldn't be the only place, where we acknowledge that creation is in fact blessing. When we come before God in the work of worship, we engage in a practice that teaches us the blessing of creation. We may forget this Monday through Saturday. But when we come together to worship, when we read scripture, I think we are reminded, in fact, if we listen carefully, that God's creation is, in fact, blessing. If, on the other hand, we come to worship for other reasons, I mentioned this last week, we see it as a way to recharge our batteries, or to cope with life, or to how, how to make it good in life, how to prosper and get rich. Then, in fact, what we have, what we have done is we are doing the work of worship For something other than what God intended. And in scripture, and we in fact read it here in Psalm 96, this is idolatry. This is in fact to fail to understand God's work in creation and therefore fail to appreciate our job in work and in worship. And before you know it, we have gone so far off track that we are not in fact worshiping God, but we are engaged in idolatry. In contrast to idolatrous worship, true worship brings brings us into another story, the redemption of creation. So when we come together to worship, it is not to escape. It should not be to escape this world. Because God put us in this world. God made this world and blessed us saying, work. This is what he has called us to do. To know creation as blessing, and I wanted to spend a bit of time on this, is to know the proper place of beauty. See, if the universe is cursed, it is if it is a curse and it is a burden, and it is not a blessing. If you wish, then beauty doesn't seem to have any place. It is really an anomaly, and perhaps it simply becomes a means of coping with the burden and the curse. In the midst of all this ugliness, we find sort of these these little dots of beauty that help us make it through the day or make it through our life. It, It provides, if you wish, temporary relief from the pain and trouble of life. It breaks through the darkness, if only for a moment. But this is not to see creation as blessing. It is, in fact, to see creation as having no meaning as creation being meaningless. And then beauty has no meaning as well. It it doesn't belong here. It's simply a freakish occurrence that happens in the midst of things. Beauty is real, but it has no reality apart from the work of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit in the redeeming of creation. I'd like us to consider two more aspects of creation today. The first is that creation has a purpose. Stop and think a minute just about purpose. And by the way, I'll use the word telos throughout this section, meaning an end or a goal. It is a purpose. That everything has a telos. Everything has a purpose. If you think of a hammer... A hammer is used to pound on something, to pound on a nail. It has a telos. That is its purpose. Its purpose is not to saw wood. Its purpose is not, in fact, to screw a screw into wood or to something else. It is to hit something. That is its purpose. Now, when we think of creation, when we think of the doctrine of creation, We need to ask not only about the telos of creation, we need in fact to recover the whole business of telos or purpose. We saw at the beginning of this series that about three centuries ago, many in the church became convinced that science could not be defeated, that in fact science uh, had explanations for reality that, that the Bible could not match, and it had in fact a way to control reality that the Bible could not match. And as a result, in a sense, the the church retreated. And it said that the Bible and Christianity and the Christian faith is about the inner life. It's about who I am inside, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But in terms of the purpose, the telos of the universe, the telos of creation, well, creation became nature then instead of creation, that was left to science. And theology in some ways became very spiritual, that you can only see certain things with the eyes of faith. The science, that, they'll take care of most things, but then theology or the church, the Christian faith, would take care of the inner life. In the process, the idea that creation has a telos, has a purpose, was lost. Because science didn't have a telos for it, and neither did the church. Science advanced, the church retreated, but neither had any concept of the telos of creation. You see, science cannot tell us the telos cannot tell us the telos of creation, in part because they don't want to. They don't feel the need to do this. And again, the church has abandoned the whole business whatsoever. In part, by the way, when the church did this, it severed creation from redemption. And so the Christian faith is all about redemption. But how can you have redemption? What is being redeemed? There somehow has to be a connection with creation, but that has been lost. So the result is that theology has no view of the goal, the purpose, the end, the telos of creation. And it cannot challenge science in the matter. By the way, why did science abandon the idea of a telos of nature? Because if, in fact, you say that the cosmos has a purpose, that it has a telos, then what you do is you rob human beings of freedom. And if you know anything about the modern world, it's all about freedom that we've got to be free. And if you say that nature, the cosmos, dare we say even creation, has a purpose, a goal, a telos, then suddenly what I want to do uh, is not the most important thing in the world because somebody else has assigned a purpose to this reality, to creation. If the church had had a healthy doctrine of creation, we could have seen this coming. We could have seen that freedom would become the ultimate value for the modern man. That every modern man and woman feels like what life is about is having the freedom to be free and to do whatever I want. And in fact, in the modern world, and you see this politically, that human society can be, no, it should be organized in such a way to maximize my freedom to do whatever I want. So, in fact, if you think about it, not to get too political here, but if you think about it, what is, why would we want democracy, let's say, over a dictatorship? Why would we say that we are better off in this country, let's say, than people are in the People's Republic of China? If we would be honest, the bottom line is freedom that we have the freedom to do what we want. Freedom is not necessarily bad, but it depends on how you define it. And suddenly, in the modern world, since science cannot tell you what the world is here about, because if they did that, then they'd be in trouble, so now it's all about, I get to choose what I want to do. And as we have seen in the last few weeks, to turn from the path of life, to turn from the telos of creation is to turn to death. It's not as though there are multiple choices. Either one lives in God's purpose, and that is life, or one turns away from it, and that is death. So we need to understand that God had a purpose for creation when he created the world. And what is that purpose? I would argue it is the new creation that is the goal, that is the end which God had in mind when he created all things. By the way, did God or does God create for his own glory, or does God create for the fulfillment of humanity? Jonathan Wilson in his book answers it this way Yes. God creates for both. God creates for his glory and he creates for the for the fulfilment of humanity. If we recognize that life is the purpose, the telos of creation, and that life is rooted in the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, then we come to see that God is glorified in giving life to creation, and that creation is glorified in receiving life and returning it to God in praise and obedient trust. So creation has a purpose. I I think this is really something we need to think about. Um, And we need to consider what the true purpose of, of creation is. As I mentioned, I think last week or the week before, some people see creation as merely the stage. That this is where God has put us so we can get saved and go to heaven. Those who don't get saved go to hell and then wrap up the stage, close down the set. That's it. That's what it's all about. And I would argue that's not the case. That creation and redemption go together and there's a purpose and they both point to the new creation. The second thing I want us to consider about creation as seen in scripture is that creation is broken. Now, what we've seen thus far is that we, have, we tend to reject creation as gift, and we tend to experience it as a burden rather than a blessing. And most people without even recognizing have denied that creation has a telos or a purpose or a goal. I'm arguing that this is all wrong. And you might, in fact, be wondering if somehow, in this series, Damon has adopted a romantic view of nature, a romantic view of creation. To say that creation is a blessing, to see it as a gift, to see it as having a purpose, for some people that sounds very romantic. Not at all. We cannot ignore sin, evil, disobedience, unbelief. The taking and keeping, which is death and violence. And we must affirm that they have no rightful place in God's creation. These things are, in fact, anti-creation. They are against God's creation. Um, I don't know if you remember, but some time ago I did a series on evil. And the definition we used for evil then was, it is the force of anti-creation, anti-life the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. We could say, which seek to destroy and deface God's creation. Jonathan Wilson points out in his book that sin, unbelief, taking, violence, and the like are not a part of creation, but a part of the doctrine of creation in the same way that sin is not a part of salvation, it is a part of the doctrine of salvation. We are to see these things as fake powers, pseudo-powers, which deny the truth of creation. God has made creation and these things have come in and they're telling us a different story. But they are fake, they are pseudo-powers. And in fact, we have seen that they were defeated by Jesus on the cross. They deny the truth of creation, they deny the truth of of redemption, and they lie to us. They pose as, this is the way the world is. This is the way the world works. And they impose on us a certain, if you wish, realism, and this realism becomes the only telos, the only possible end of the story. So the only two two certain things in, in life are death and taxes. And so death becomes the story. It becomes the telos of the human existence. If we are not careful, because we buy into a new story, a new telos, death, then we look to other sources for the ability to cope with this. If you wish, to numb us to anesthetize us. This may be religion, entertainment, or technology, all of which, again, are pseudo-powers. These are things that are telling us a story that is not true, that are telling us of a tell us that is not true. As I said, they were defeated by Jesus on the cross in Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, Triumphing over them by the cross. They are now under the rule of Christ for the redemption of creation. By the way, when you take these things like religion or entertainment or technology or any other thing that is a coping mechanism, ultimately they leave us with nothing. They are not sufficient because they're pseudo. They're fake. They're not real. And when people become... Disillusion, they may, in fact, conclude that there are no such powers, but that there is no meaning in the world. And then they do what they should not do, and that is to deny that there is life itself. Bear with me in the next few minutes, and I hope you can follow along. Let's talk about sin and death and the fall of creation generally speaking when we talk about sin and death we see them as the result of the fall from the perfection of the original creation I would suggest to you as I've mentioned already that to understand where we are right now in history God's purpose is to see that God's work of redemption and creation has as it's tell us the new creation that both creation and redemption are aimed at the new creation So, sin and death are not the result of a fall away from original perfection. Rather, they are the consequences. They are the evidence of turning away from the telos of creation. In other words, they are the result of rejecting God's purpose for creation. So, it's not a corruption. Sin and death are not a corruption of the original, but rather a disruption of God's purpose. See if I can express it this way. Creation was teleologically perfect. That is, it had a perfect telos. It's going toward a perfect end, the new creation. But it was not originally perfect. I'm not saying it was imperfect. But what we need to do is understand what the perfection of creation means. By the way, when we studied... uh, wealth and poverty some years ago. We talked about this, that when God created man and woman, they were sinless, but they were not perfect. We need to make this distinction. They were sinless but not perfect. That is to say, they were not complete. God put them in the Garden of Eden. It's a locality, not a some make up place. It is a garden. The whole earth was not a garden. When we talk about the Garden of Eden, we are talking about a specific place on the planet. The whole planet, in fact, was not the Garden of Eden. God prepared this place. Read Genesis chapter 2. He prepared it for the man. Adam, as a new creature, God had made him, was a fledgling. He was inexperienced. God sheltered him from the rest of creation, but he didn't smother him. He puts him in the Garden And there he is supposed to grow. There he is supposed to develop. Because he has a telos, a purpose. So, as we saw when we went through this, that spiritually he is to be awakened, he's given a command. I mean, why did God have to tell Adam and Eve what they could do and what they couldn't do? Because they were perfect, didn't they know everything? No, they were sinless but not perfect. They had to be taught. You are free to eat, God tells them, from any tree, but you must not eat from this particular tree. God is the creator. Man is the creature. God is teaching the man in the garden what he can and cannot do. And then there's a cultural awakening that is strongly hinted at in verses 10 through 14 of Genesis 2. Because the narrative uh, narrative breaks out of Eden and opens into a vista of a world of beauty. If you wish, Genesis 1... Is fairly general in its description of God creating the world. Look at Genesis 2 as it describes the Garden of Eden. And what we find is not simply a place of primitive simplicity, but of complexity and of beauty. God put Adam and Eve in a place of beauty so that they could grow aesthetically. Because when God made them, they were without sin, but they were not complete. And then there's a social awakening. Adam is naming the animals, but he is alone. And then God brings Eve to him and he awakens. And we hear this in the song, Here is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Each of these are awakenings. They are, in fact, learning. There is progress that is happening here. There is growth. Let me ask you, Adam and Eve's relationship... Before they fell, before they sinned, was it static, or did they in fact grow in their relationship? I think they grew, which means they were sinless but not perfect. So man was to grow in his knowledge, and I, this is only my opinion, but I think the day may have come, had they grown, had they obeyed God, when God would have shown them the knowledge of good and evil, but they weren't ready for it then. It's like somebody in kindergarten and you're trying to teach them calculus. No, you have to learn, you have to grow. And Adam and Eve were put in this garden. I'm convinced that one day, had they not sinned, they were to leave the garden and do what God said, subdue the earth. But first of all, they're in school because there they are to learn. The Garden of Eden was a place of great wonder. But more than that, it was a place of learning. There, Adam and Eve are free to dream, to use their creativity, to work in productive and rewarding ways, to reap the fruits of their labor, to take human pleasure in the whole of life in the image of God and His good pleasure. They were to grow toward the telos, the purpose that God had intended from them. From this perspective, God... Created precisely the creation that he intended to create. And what is that? A cosmos that would, by God's work, become the new creation by virtue of God's love for the cosmos and the cosmic response to God's love. In other words, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was sinless, if you wish, but it was not yet complete. In the same way that we see Adam and Eve being put in a garden to learn, creation is also in a process, and it's going toward a particular goal, and that is the new creation. See, I think for many of us, we think of creation at the beginning as perfect, complete, finished, that's it. And therefore when Adam and Eve sin, it's like humpty Dumpty, you know who can put all the pieces back together again? And so when we think of redemption, we sort of toss this out the window, just all the broken pieces, the world's broken, and then, so let's just go to heaven as a form of escape out of, out of this reality. No. God created the world with a purpose, and sin and death came into the world, and they did not corrupt that purpose, they disrupted it. And in redemption, Jesus Christ is putting us back on track. He is redeeming His creation Wilson speculates, and it's only speculation, that if, in fact, Adam and Eve had not sinned, that God would eventually have brought about the new creation through the incarnation. That Jesus was always going to come into the world. But if there had been no sin, he would not have had to die. But he would have simply taken us and taken us to the goal, to tell us that is the new creation But that is speculation. Right now we understand that the fall of creation is a falling away from God's purpose, God's goal for creation. And redemption is, in fact, to return creation to its telos. That is to become the new creation. If, in fact, we think of the fall as teleological rather than original that is that the fall was taking us off the path of God's intent for us rather than a total destruction of what God had done then redemption and the, the redemption that Jesus has in mind for us is in fact to put us toward that goal as well see God created us that we would have life and relationship and the way that he made Adam and Eve the relationship had begun But man, there's a long way to go before they have, I would say, the type of relationship ultimately that we will have in the new creation. The fall put us, put the cosmos on the path to death and destruction. That's the world, not creation. And redemption removes us from that path puts us back on the path that God intends toward the new creation. In other words, redemption does not return us to the original state. I think this is why some people struggle with the whole business, because what, we're going to go back to Adam and Eve again. Um, redemption is restoring created things to their purpose. It points them to the completion of creation, the new creation. Let me close. I suspect, particularly after, this ser- after preparing for this sermon, that one of the reasons that we struggle with healthy doctrines of creation and redemption is that we have mistakenly thought that when God created the world in the beginning that it was perfect and that it was complete. And somehow we conveniently forget what God said to Adam and Eve, subdue the earth and rule over it why would you need to subdue a perfect creation? It's not to say that it was sinful or that it was marked by death. But it, in fact, was not yet finished. was not yet complete. And when we are told that on the seventh day God rested, that doesn't mean that God stopped doing things. It sets the pattern for Sabbath for us. But, I, I'm convinced that what we think is that God made the world and that was it. And it is almost as though the purpose of the world was the world itself. That that's, God made the world and, and there it is. And then sin came in and messed it up. And so what God has done is sent Jesus into the world to rescue us and take us out of this mess and take us to something else, to take us to heaven we may, in fact, think that the us of creation was creation itself. And we fail to understand or appreciate that it did, in fact, have a purpose. It, in fact, was pointing toward the new creation. I think for many of us, we've not had a sense that creation was headed toward the new creation. Um, we've imagined that creation was complete. And, and that sin completely messed that up. Um, we have the fall due to Adam and Eve, and therefore God's rescue is sending Jesus into the world. This has bits and pieces of the truth, but it is in fact an incomplete telling of the good news, of what happened, what is happening, and what will happen. What we need to understand, and what I want you to take away from this today, is that the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit brought about creation with a purpose, with a telos. And that is that creation was to grow into the new creation. Sin and death came in and knocked us off the track, so to speak, and Jesus has come to put us and creation back on track and lead us to the new creation. Remember that creation was perfect in its purpose, but it was not originally perfect. So sin and death disrupted, they in fact deflected the completion. God is moving creation along and sin and death knock us off track, if you wish. But in love, God sends His Son to redeem His creation through His Spirit. He sent His Son to redeem His people and pointing us to the new creation One of the first Bible verses I ever remember memorizing as a child, I think it was five or six years old, is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This has been God's purpose all along. And if we see this, I think we... Well, first of all, we need to have a healthy doctrine of creation and of redemption. But then we begin to see what the good news is. And we have a better appreciation for what God has done, what he has given us, the gift of creation, the blessing of creation, and something that has purpose. And even in its brokenness, we can see that Jesus is redeeming. He is putting creation back on track. Read Romans 8, creation is groaning In a sense, it's waiting to be put back on track. That is redemption. And what is the track leading to? It is the new creation in which we will be in relationship with God beyond our comprehension at this point. What we have now is is just like a taste of it. And one day, we will have communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And creation will be redeemed. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to realize how modern we are in our thinking, how unbiblical we are in our thinking, so utilitarian. We think of your creation as only a stage from which you will save us. We do not deny that, in fact, you are redeeming us. Help us to see that we are a part of your creation, A creation that you said was very good. A creation which was given as gift, as blessing, and that had purpose. That you might bring us into an eternal, delightful relationship with you. Pray that by your grace we could think on these things and meditate on them and have a deeper understanding of your creation. And the work of redemption that Jesus accomplished. And why we come together to worship you. To acknowledge you as the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The God who is our creator. I thank you that we could gather today on this rather warm day. Watch over us in the next few days as it's supposed to be even hotter. Uh, Watch over the babies. uh, Keep them. But each one of us in this hot weather, guide us in the coming days of this week. May we be aware of your presence as you are redeeming your creation. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.